0: And if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Psalms. We're in Psalm 81 this morning. If you're reading out of your pew Bibles, it's page 491. But we're in Psalm 81. Let us hear God's holy word. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpets at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden from your hands. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress, you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the weeds, and with the honey from the rock I would satisfy you. May God bless this, the reading of his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we gather together for worship, we ask that you would... Indeed, guide our hearts and guide our minds that you would give us hearts warm to praise, that we would rejoice in you. Lord, we thank you that we can come and unburden our hearts of sin and confession alongside of one another. That we can can confess our needs, our burdens, our weights and cares of this world and entrust them to you and know that you hear them. And that you will work all these things together for your glory and our good. But Lord, as we come to the preaching of your word, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. That you would guide us. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That you would indeed hide your servant behind the cross and make yourself known in the preaching of the word. So that all praise and honor and glory would be rendered to you. And that none would be left for men. For you are our God. You are our strength. You are our Savior. And we cling to you. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, our prophet, our priest, our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Why are you here today? Now that's one of those questions, right, that's very contextually dependent Sometimes it's such an obvious question that it invites sarcastic responses, right? Someone walks up to you and goes, why are you here? Why am I in the grocery store? Well, I went through the wrong wardrobe trying to get to Narnia. Uh, Of course I'm I'm here to get groceries, right? And you know why I'm here. Now, if you put that question into the context of a philosophy class, it may be the start of a complex metaphysical debate. Why are we here? But here in church on a Sunday. It's actually more challenging of a question than we might first realize. You see, people go to church for a lot of different reasons. Some people come to be entertained by a concert-like atmosphere. Some come in order to find a sense of community and bond with other human beings. Some come for free food. And while there's nothing wrong with enjoying worship or fellowship, and certainly where two or more Baptists are gathered together, food is with them also, (laughs) those items should be way down the list of reasons of why we've gathered together, of why each of us has come to this place. The reason we should be here today is to meet with God. And when we meet with God, things happen. And there's a lot of pieces to that. We come to hear God speak to our hearts. Yes, there's a human fallible servant that is placed in the pulpit by God's providence to proclaim those truths. But we should be listening to hear God's words come through. We come To meet with God. We come to learn from him. We come and pour out our hearts to him. We do not come in order to draw. But we come to give ourselves to God. As living sacrifices before him. To rejoice in him. And we always find that we have gained more than we have given when we come to God. The psalm that we come to today is very self-consciously about what it means to come together to worship God, to meet with God, and give him praise. And there are things that flow out of that that are surprising. And no doubt already you felt some of that just in reading through the psalm. So this morning I want to work through the text in the course of five points. The first is the song of Feast, which will cover verses 1 through 3. Song of Remembrance, 4 through 7. Song of Commandments, 8 through 10. Song of Sin, 11 through 14. And Song of Regret, 14 through 16. And that outline is included for you in your bulletin, as well as the verse list that we're progressing through. But we're starting out with the Song of Feast. And there's a lot of debate about the original purpose for this psalm. Uh, Ross tells us that it's been traditionally identified with the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus 23, 33 to 36 gives us that tradition. Harmon and others argue that we're looking at a psalm that was designed for Passover. Second Temple Judaism would wind up using it for the whole New Year stretch and festival. And regardless of which festival we're looking at, this was a psalm that was written for corporate worship at a feast. When all of God's people gathered from the distant lands that they had been scattered to, they were all required to come together at Jerusalem and give God worship. So it's meant to be a corporate worship experience, whereas a lot of the psalms that we read right, are, are originating from an individual's experience. David out in the wilderness being chased by Saul or something along those lines. This is consciously a psalm for worship. And it opens with a command to sing and shout for joy in praise to God. And we receive more on the reason for why we are to give thanks in the next section. But it's hinted at here in the description of God as our strength. Psalm 28 verses 7 through 8. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Now, even at harvest season, right, where all of the crops have come in and the greatest wealth has been gathered, so to speak, for the land, even at such a height of the season, there would be some gathered who were more disposed to weep than to rejoice. Whether they lost family members or Perhaps they had no crops to gather in that year because of locusts or hail or whatever else it may be. And even as we gather today, some of you may be more broken and weary from the sorrows of this life. And we ask, can such a person sing and shout for joy? After we've lost, after we've been broken, after we are grieving, how can we come together and hear a command to sing and shout for joy? But David, after he found that his son had indeed passed, washed his face and he went into the house of God and he worshipped. God calls us to find our strength, our joy, our peace in him. Our reason to worship is found in him, not in the circumstances around us. In his faithfulness, in his salvation of us, in his promises for the future. Matthew eleven twenty seven 27 through 30. Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To paraphrase Susanna Spurgeon, even though our eyes may be filled with tears, when our eyes are turned towards heaven in prayer, they sparkle with the light of heaven. And God's people gather and worship and unite their hearts in song. Nicol writes, the religion of Israel allowed and required exuberant joy. It sternly rejected painting, and sculpture, but abundantly employed music, the most ethereal of the arts, which stirs emotions and longings too delicate and deep for speech. Whatever differences in form have necessarily attached to the progress from the worship of the temple to that of the church, the free play of joyful emotion should mark the latter even more than the former. Decorum is good, but not if purchased by the loss of ringing glad. As J.I. Packer once said, if our theology does not naturally lead us to sing the praises of God, it's inherently a flawed theology. But next, assignments are given to the Levite musicians. The tambourine, the lyre, the harp were to be employed in guiding the hearts and voices of God's people to praise. And those three instruments fairly naturally go together. But then the trumpet was to blast. And this isn't... You know, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, finely tuned. We're talking about this giant ram's horn. And the shofar can, admittedly, be used to make beautiful tones uh, in different ways. But that's not really what's being described here. We're, We're hearing this trumpet blast. As John Gill records, the Jews say this blowing of trumpets was in commemoration of Isaac's deliverance. A ram being sacrificed for him, and therefore they sounded with trumpets made of ram's horns. Or in remembrance of the trumpet blown at the giving of the law, though it rather was an emblem of the gospel and the ministry of it, by which sinners are aroused, awakened, and quickened, made alive. And souls are charmed and allured and filled with spiritual joy and gladness. Matthew Henry adds the pleasantness of the harp and the awfulness. He means that in a positive sense. The awfulness of the trumpet intimate to us that God is to be worshipped with cheerfulness and joy, with reverence and godly fear. The trumpet blast was an announcement of God. It was a statute and rule of God. Here we have the startling blast that recalled the awesome destruction of Jericho, as well as The terrifying presence of God at Sinai when the Israelites cried out that God would stop speaking lest they die. That is the trumpet blast. And it calls the hearer to be sure that they are ready to meet with God. This was a statute, a rule of God for the nation to gather the, the essential feast days, to blow the trumpet and to worship. Numbers chapter 10, verse 10. On the days of your gladness also and at your appointed feasts and at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpet over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. And we no longer observe those Old Testament feasts of new and full moons, that's uh, not something that we are called to anymore. Paul writes to the church in Colossae, chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Right? The principle being, we have what all of those feasts and festivals were pointing to in Christ himself. But as we gather today on the Christian Sabbath, that is according to God's command, according to God's calling. And we are still called to the examination of our hearts, our preparedness to meet with God before whom all is laid bare. So we are called to consider God in Christ as we sing, as we worship, as we come to hear God speak to our hearts. But now, in verse 4, Israel is given further reason and reminder to praise. Now, to be clear, God is always, always worthy of praise. And we learn that from the angels who have never experienced redemption. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, And one angel called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Revelation 4.8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So God is always worthy of our praise, but he gives us even more reason. He prescribed the first national festival for the nation of Israel on the eve of their deliverance from Egypt, that they would be able to remember and worship. Commentators and translators alike have struggled to decipher these next words, though. It's most literally a lip or accent or language, which I do not know, I hear. We find similar language in Psalm 114, verse 1. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of a strange language. Now, if we take it to be God speaking, as in the verses which follow, then this clearly isn't meant to be taken literally. God knows the language of Israel, and he knows the language of the Egyptians. So it would be in reference to him not knowing the Egyptians in a saving way, Those who this nation who has oppressed his people, they are foreign to him. They are alien to him. As Spurgeon said, the Lord speaks here as the God of Israel, identifying himself with his own chosen nation and calling that an unknown tongue to himself, which was unknown to them. He had never been adored by psalm or prayer in the tongue of Egypt. The Hebrew was the speech known in his sacred house, and the Egyptian was outlandish and foreign there. Tucker takes a similar interpretation. The language that he then heard, the religious worship of idolaters, vows offered up to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things, Romans one twenty three, and strength and mercy sought from every object in nature except himself, That was a language unknown to him. He knew it not. So that's one option that we have, right? That that God God is saying, the Egyptians are a foreign language to me. It could also be that God is describing his people calling to him for the first time in that generation. Like a new voice and dialect of a people who had been estranged from him. And if we take it as Israel speaking, then it could be a way of saying that they feel alienated and isolated in a land of oppression as God's people who do not belong there, as they describe the Egyptians as this foreign language. But I think it's honestly best to read it as Israel describing what it is to be called by God. I hear a language I had not known. Now, to be clear, they knew of God, but they did not know God. They had heard of God from their ancestors and from their traditions, but it's a whole other thing altogether to hear God himself and to see his work firsthand. Many of you grew up in the church, grew up with the language of God and Jesus around you, and remember what it was to see God Alive in the scriptures. To hear God call you out of death and into life. To experience that and to see it in a whole new way. As Augustine describes it, you will hear a language which you do not know, which they that know now hear and recognize, bearing witness and knowing. You will hear where you ought to have your heart. But for much of Israel, God's Voice would remain strange and incomprehensible. His commandments foreign to their hearts because they did not have eyes to see or ears to hear. But regardless of who's speaking in verse 5, verse 6 is clearly God reminding them of their deliverance from slavery. How he removed the burden from their shoulders, how he lifted their hand from the basket that was used for carrying the bricks and the clay. When they called out in distress, God delivered them. He answered them from the secret place of thunder. And this is most likely a reference to Sinai, where God spoke from the cloud that descended and obscured from their direct view. Deuteronomy 4:11 through 12. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Right, and We can see how that fits with this description here. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. And God tested them at Meribah. In Exodus 17, 1 through 7, Moses records how the people thirsted in the wilderness of sin. They quarreled with Moses and they tested God. So God calls Moses to strike the rock and water flowed out. And it's one of those beautiful images of Christ, as Paul explores for us in 1 Corinthians, the rock that is struck. And because he is stricken, we receive the waters of life. But even as they sinfully tested God, God was testing them and exposing their hearts. But we can hear these things for ourselves. Even though we weren't there in the exodus, even though our biological ancestors may not have been there. Because the exodus itself is a metaphor that is written into human history. Where do we learn the language of God? Where do we first hear God's voice? Where do we hear it again and again and again as his people? In the reading and in the preaching of his word. God is still speaking today. It's not brand new revelation. But it's not the new. We don't need new revelation. We need to actually learn the things that he's already said to us. We need the repetition of those beautiful truths. And we hear God speak to us in the preaching of his word. In the frailty of human servants, he calls his own to repentance and faith. In John chapter 10, verses 27 to 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And indeed, he drew us out of slavery to sin. He took the burden of the guilt of sin off of our shoulders and placed it on Christ at the cross. He speaks to us as we journey in the wilderness of this life, testing us and trying us as we go to expose our grumbling hearts so that we might repent and turn to him. And then God calls them to hear again the commandment which convicts them. He speaks like a father pleading with a child whose disobedience will bring them sorrow and pain. There's love in the address. My people. He has given them every reason to hear and heed and worship and praise. As Spurgeon said, a God of mercy cannot see men heaping up sorrow for themselves through their sins without feeling his compassion excited for them. Now. We want to keep all of these elements of Scripture in balance. It's clear from God's word that He has decreed all things. So we know that God decreed their rebellion from the beginning, from before creation, but He did not author it. He did not author their sin. He did not force them to it. And while He delights in His justice, which demands punishment for sin... He does not get sadistic joy from the suffering of sinners. And he calls in the free offer of the gospel for sinners to repent and believe and be saved. And God repeats the first commandment from Sinai. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth or beneath. Or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting iniquity on the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love, covenant faithfulness to thousands of those who will love me and keep my commandments. Pierce paraphrases the commandment this way. I claim your obedience to me as your God and Savior. I will be acknowledged by you as your God, your Savior, your Redeemer, your Holy One, your all. None shall share with me in this. The wonders I have wrought for you, the blessings I have bestowed on you, I claim the sole glory of all the good you are possessed of be it spiritual or temporal, and the continuation of it to myself alone as the gift and fruit of my free, sovereign, royal munificence, as altogether the free acts of my grace. God is jealous for his glory. And while we may not cast golden calves and Buddhas to bow down to, we idolize wealth, sex power and other things of this world and they are foreign gods because we are not citizens of this world we are citizens of heaven philippians 3 19 to 21 their end is destruction their god is their belly and they glory in their shame with set on earthly things but our citizenship is in heaven And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So when He talks about foreign gods, He's talking about any God we make out of this world. And God reminds them He is their God who has shown them grace. He calls them to run to him for good things and to open their mouths wide to be filled. In a surprising way, this is our whole relationship to God. Begins by us opening our mouths in confession of sin to be filled with forgiveness and the comfort thereof. We run to him for all our needs in prayer. He gives us labor to glorify him. But even this is good for us. All that he gives to us is good, and all that is good for us, he gives to us, even the trials. And our mouths are often not opened wide because we're busy chewing the seed pods of the pigs like prodigal sons. We lick our lips at the offerings of this world rather than at heavenly treasures. Our mouths are filled with mutterings and mumblings as we rake the muck, stick, and stubble of the ground while the crown of sonship is offered above us outside our line of sight. Benoam said, If we open our mouths to God in prayer, he will fill it with more and more suitable petitions and arguments. When we attempt to open the mouth, God will open it still wider. God will fill the mouth with abundant thanksgivings. But we shall all be filled with those blessings we pray for if they are calculated to promote our real good and the glory of God. When we open our mouths, we may not get what it is that we've asked for, but we will get what is good. In Jeremiah 31, 25, God said, For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. Luke 11, 10 through 13, Christ declares, For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I love that Verse. Because it convicts me every time. Because we start to hear, everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds. We start to go, okay, whatever I ask God, he's going to give it to me. A million dollars. (laughs) A handsome smile. All the things I've ever wanted. And then we hit the end and he goes, if you can give good gifts to your children, even though you're sinners and you're wretched how much more will God give you the Holy Spirit? And we should feel that conviction when we go, well, that's not really what I was asking for. But it's the best thing we could possibly have. As Spurgeon so eloquently put it, we ought to consider not only what sin takes from our present stock, what we already have, But it prevents our gaining. Reflection will soon show us that sin always costs us dear. So let us be like David in Psalm 119, 131. I open my mouth and pants because I long for your commandments. And let us remind ourselves of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But God laments that Israel did not obey. Though they had this offer. They did not hear and heed. They ran with open mouths to foreign gods. Generation after generation. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And it's a strange thing to see this rebuke here. We've flowed through all of this. Joyous, give celebration, give joy, and then all of a sudden this turn to rebuke. And it was it actually kind of started in our last section. But shouldn't we just all be happy and be joyous together? But God brings about this rebuke. And it's all the more surprising when we remember the context of how this is playing out. God inspired this psalm, God wrote this psalm through a human servant for his people to sing to one another. So that the voice of rebuke would come from the people standing next to them. On the heels of a call for shouts of joy and song, God upbraids his people for their sins by putting the words in their own mouths. But this is what happens when we draw near to God. We are convicted of sin. The light of his glory exposes the sins of our souls. But that's not a negative thing. That's not a thing to be dodged and avoided and prevented. It's a call to repentance. But through repentance, we are drawn nearer still. It removes the clouds that obscure the joy and love of God toward us. Sin stands in the way of what truly brings us joy. And God says he gave them over to their own hearts and desires. It recalls the foreboding language of Judges 17.6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And Nicol writes, there is no worse fate for a man than that to be allowed to do as he chooses. Self-engineered paths are always hard, and if pursued to the end, lead into the dark. Now, it's a good thing to have freedom as men from men. It is precious to have freedom and liberty in Christ. But it is a terrifying thing to be untethered from God's guidance and restraining grace. And this happened in varying degrees at different times for national Israel. When she would chase foreign gods, God gave them over to the nations of those gods for a time and a season. Sometimes this was for a single generation, like we see again and again in Judges. But we see it at a terrible level of culmination in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. Jesus lamented, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And of course, this is a lament in light of what the destruction that was to come in 70 A.D., where the people would be scattered and the city would be destroyed. But we see it in the world around us. Romans chapter 1, 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boasters, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And God tells the nation that he would quickly subdue their enemies If they ran to him, God would turn his almighty hand against their enemies and deliver them. If only they would submit to him. Deuteronomy 32, 29. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. And he says those who hate God would cringe toward him. And this is an odd little phrase in the original text. It's hard to translate, Uh, but it may mean that they would fake their obedience to him. Those who hate God and seeing the sovereignty and the reign of God would at least feign obedience to God. And it may not be just the pagan nations, but even the unfaithful people of Israel and by parallel fake Christians. And while that makes for good society and working order, it doesn't save and this God made clear even in the Old Testament. Isaiah 29:13, The Lord said, because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and the, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. It's not just about what you do. It's about why you do it. You can show up at church and you can sing the hymns and you can put money in the offering plate and you can do all the Christian stuff. But if your heart is not regenerate and clinging to Christ, then it doesn't doesn't do you any good. It It doesn't save you. Only God can save you. And if you don't know Christ in that way, run to him and cling to him. Their fate is eternal condemnation. Those who hate God. And Augustine draws this painfully close to home. When he interprets the lies to God as one form, as being the way in which we return to sins we once repented of. We lie to God when we draw near and embrace again those things which we denounced before God in asking forgiveness. But returning to the promises for obedience, Israel might have had the covenant blessings in the land of milk and honey. They would have had the best of wheat and honey from the rock, better things than manna in the wilderness and water from the rock. But they failed the commands, they fell short. And they disobeyed. And as we look at this last verse as Christians, it turns from laments into promise. It becomes so much sweeter because we are reminded that we are given these things. We have these things in part now and fullness in eternity. We receive them for Christ's sake and in Christ himself. He came and he fulfilled the law for us. The nation of Israel is under what we call the Mosaic economy and law. It was do this and receive the blessing. Fail this and receive the punishments. As Christians in the covenants of grace, it's made clear Christ did this, receive the blessing. Christ came and fulfilled the law for us. So now because of his righteousness and his sacrifice by grace through faith in him, we have the bread of life and we have honey from the rock. John Gill writes, the rock spiritually and mystically designs Christ, the rock of salvation, 1 Corinthians ten four. the honey out of the rock the fullness of grace in him and the blessings of it, the sure mercies of David and the precious promises of the everlasting covenants and the gospel, which is sweeter than honey or the honeycomb. And with these, such are filled and satisfied who hearken to Christ and walk in his ways. For as the whole of what is here said shows what Israel lost by disobedience, it clearly suggests what such enjoy who hear and obey. And we obey the call to repentance and faith, understanding that even that is granted to us by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We receive because of Christ. So I ask, have you heard God call you? Have you run to Christ in repentance and faith? Have you tasted that bread of life and the honey from the rock? We come every Sunday morning with empty hands and open mouths. We come with nothing to offer and everything to gain. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this day, for the opportunity to worship. And we ask that you would help us worship, to hear, and we ask that you would help us hear. To remember these truths. And we ask that you would cause them to resound in our hearts. In our minds. As we go through the course of the week. And Lord we ask that you would apply these truths to us. Or that we wouldn't just go out of here nodding in assent to these things. But indeed conformed to Christ. And that if there are any here that do not know you. Lord call them. Draw them. Let them hear that voice that is so foreign, so strange, so beautiful and terrifying all at the same time. Show them that they are sinners by your law and show them Christ in your gospel. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.